Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. And if you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find those verses on page 875. So Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. Now we spent the last couple of Sundays uh, studying what is probably one of Jesus' best known and uh, best loved parables, the, the parable of the prodigal son, or as we called it, the parable of the two lost sons. This morning, we come to what might be Jesus' most perplexing and therefore most overlooked parable, the parable of the dishonest manager. In this parable, Jesus encourages us to learn from, and at least in some sense, to emulate a dishonest manager. To emulate a thief. Someone who steals from his employer in order to provide himself with a a golden parachute for his uh, future life. This man is certainly not the sort of person we would normally look to for instruction. He is not the sort of person that we would uh, normally think about emulating or even admiring. And he's certainly not the sort of person we would want our children to choose for a role model. And so we are left asking ourselves, why, why would Jesus draw attention to this man? And why would he call on us to, to learn from him? What exactly does Jesus want us to learn from this dishonest manager? That is the question that I hope uh, we can at least begin to answer this morning. So let's read it together. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. He also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking away the management from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, One hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon our study of His Word here this morning. Father God, this is Your Word. 
And at times your words are difficult. At times we struggle to understand. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here now to lead us and to guide us into the truth and to sanctify us by that truth, Father, that your word might have its effect, that we might be taught, that we might be rebuked and corrected where necessary, that we might be trained and equipped for every good work, Father, that you have called us to do to the glory of your name and the good of your kingdom. Father, this is what we ask, and we ask for it boldly in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As I said, this is a somewhat unfamiliar parable. I wonder how many of you have heard sermons or or teaching on this parable before. I wonder how many of you have even heard this parable before. It's one uh, that often gets skipped over, doesn't often get uh, recorded in the Sunday school materials. It certainly doesn't get the same attention as the parables that we have been studying in Luke chapter 15. And the reason that this parable is so often skipped over is really not that hard to understand. This parable is skipped over because it is hard to understand. It's it's hard to understand exactly why Jesus would point to someone like the dishonest manager and say, you need to be more like him. It's confusing to say the least. But there are other places where Jesus does something at least similar Remember, Jesus compares himself to a thief coming in the night. That's not exactly what we might expect. Later, he is going to compare his heavenly father to an unjust judge uh, who, who answers prayer. And so, at least there's, there's a pattern here that occasionally Jesus will pick an un, uh, you know, unexpected character and say, there's something we can learn from him. Now, of course, when Jesus compares his father to an unjust judge, he's not saying that his father is an unjust judge. And here, when he tells us to learn from a dishonest manager, he's not telling us to become dishonest managers. But what is it that he is telling us to do? What is it that he wants us to learn? I want to suggest to you that as strange as it may seem at first glance, the point of the parable is really not that hard to see. Look with me again at at the second half of verse 8. Look what Jesus says here. After sort of concluding the story of the parable, Jesus says this. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So he says, The sons of this world, people like this dishonest manager, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation, with the the people around them, than the sons of light. Lie. So what do we see here? What we see is that what Jesus is commending or what Jesus is, is pointing us to is shrewdness. He, he's not commending the dishonesty of the manager, but rather he is commending the fact that this man was shrewd in the way that he handled the wealth that was at his disposal. He is calling the sons of light to be more shrewd, to, to be shrewd in the same Way He is pointing us to this dishonest manner and saying, you need to be more like him, not in, in everything he does, but in this one area, this area of shrewdness. In effect, what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, even a crook knows he needs to use what is, what is at his disposal now to secure his future. Even a crook knows that what he's using now, even if it's not really rightfully his, even what is at his disposal now needs to be used with an eye to the future. How much more should the sons of light know and do the same thing? 
How much more should the sons of light, that's, that's the disciples, that's, that's true Christians, how much more should the sons of light live with the future in view, especially when you consider that the sons of light know that future to be eternal? He says, listen, there is an eternal future out there, and you need to live now with that future in view. Like this dishonest manager, you need to be shrewd enough to live with an eternal perspective. That's what this parable is about. Let's, let's look at it in, in more detail. Jesus begins with a familiar scene. Notice how he begins. He says, there was a rich man who had a manager. And that's a, a common situation. There have always been people with wealth, and people with wealth have always had people to manage their money. It's the way that it works. They, they hire managers. They hire people to invest for them, to, to manage their estate. And here is a rich man, and he has this manager who is looking after his wealth. But Jesus quickly introduces the, the crisis of the situation, the, the dramatic tension. He, he tells us that this manager is a crook. He says that charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now, Jesus doesn't give us a lot of details here. We don't exactly know what uh, form this wasting took, whether it was just simple incompetence or, as we suspect, given what takes place later, that he was uh, misappropriating the funds, that he was using the master's wealth for his own advantage rather than in his master's best interest. We don't know exactly what was going on, but we suspect that here this man was, was using his master's wealth in order to pad his own lifestyle. And so the rich man calls the manager into his office and he says to them, what is this that I hear about you? Now that's not a question that he's really asking. That's one of those rhetorical questions where he says, you know, I've heard some bad things. And then he immediately proceeds to fire him. Notice what he says. He says, turn in your account. Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. In other words, go clean out your desk, turn in your keys, hand over your computer, you're fired. You, you no longer get to serve as my manager. And when the manager hears this, he is understandably upset. He's not mad at the rich man exactly. It's just that he, he's afraid. He, he doesn't know what he is going to do. Notice how he begins to talk to himself. <clears throat> he says, what shall I do since my master is taking away the management from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am too ashamed to beg. And so suddenly this manager realizes the, the peril of his situation. And he, he, he realizes he doesn't know what he is going to do. He doesn't know how he is going to be able to provide for himself. He, he suspects that he will not be able to earn a living through manual labor. Those are not his gifts. That is not his, his strength. He's had a, a, a cush job for far too long. He doesn't think he's going to be able to make a living digging ditches. And he doesn't want to be reduced to begging. And so he, he begins to ponder, what is it that I can do? How can I? provide for myself going forward since I've lost my job. Finally, the manager has an idea. Look at verse 4. He says, okay, I've decided what I will do so that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. And that's important. Notice the goal here. Notice what it is that he is after. The manager's chief concern is to secure some means of providing for himself after he loses his job. 
Now, there's some debate about what exactly it means to be received into houses. There's some debate about that. Or is he just asking for hospitality? Or, as some commentators think, is he hoping that, so these people will hire me, they'll give me a job when I'm fired here. We're not exactly sure what he has in mind. But clearly, the goal is to secure for himself some means of providing for himself in the future so that he doesn't have to dig ditches and so that he doesn't have to be reduced to begging. That is what he is after. And here's what he decides to do. We, we see the plan in action beginning in verse 5. He says, So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. Now that's, that's a significant debt. All right? We need to, to recognize this. Again, commentators disagree, but the, generally the consensus is that this might be as much as three years' wages, this, this 100 measures of, of oil. This is, this is a lot of money. And so what does he do? He says, take your bill and, and quickly write down 50. He cuts that bill in half by as much as a year and a half wages. He just wipes off of the debt. Then he says to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. And he says to him, take your bill and write 80. Now we don't know, does he just not like this guy as much? Is there, is there a difference in the rate for oil and wheat? We're not exactly sure why. Um, he, he does it differently here. But again, this is a significant debt. Not quite as significant as the debt of oil, but this hundred measures of wheat might be more than a year's wages. So again, this is, a, this is a significant debt and this is a significant discount that he is giving to this man. And if we understand what he's doing, it seems pretty clear, at least to me, that he is using his, mon- his master's money to buy favor with these people so that he will have some options in the future. Now, some commentators, again, they don't like the idea that, that this manager is stealing from his master and that Jesus would somehow commend that. So they look for other explanations. And, and possibly, they say, this, this manager, he's not actually stealing from his master, but he's just writing off his share of, of the bill. And I, I highly doubt that. I, I doubt that a manager would have a half share in a bill of, of oil. That doesn't seem to make any sense. I think we just need to go with the plain meaning of the text. He's stealing. <laughs> He is stealing from his master. That's why Jesus calls him an unrighteous manager or a dishonest manager as it gets uh, translated. He is stealing from his boss in order to secure his own future. And if that's what, you're, if that's what he's doing, if, we, if we've understood it correctly, what would you expect to be you know, the master's response to this plan? How would you expect the the master to to respond to this manager who, after he's already been fired, proceeds to to, to go in and steal even more from his account? We'd expect the master to be angry. We'd expect him not only to throw him in to, to fire him, but now maybe even to throw him into jail. But that's not exactly what happens. Look with me again at verse 8. What does Jesus say? Jesus says that the master commended the dishonest. And I'm not quite sure why it gets translated that way. It's it's just plainly the word for unrighteous. Jesus, the master commended the unrighteous, the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Again, we need to be careful at this point. We, we, We need to be careful not to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that the rich man wasn't mad. You know, he's not saying that that the rich man liked what the manager did. The manager is still fired, and it's possible he may still be thrown into jail. 
But Jesus is simply saying that the, the rich man was impressed. He, he was impressed with the shrewdness that this manager showed. A long time ago, I saw a, a movie called Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not, but the movie is about two con artists, and they're both trying to take advantage of the same rich young girl. And so throughout the movie, because they both have targeted the same girl, they're, they're kind of working against one another. And so they will try to protect the girl from the other one's traps while trying to lure her into their own. And this goes on throughout the movie as these two con artists work against one another. And at the end of the movie, they both think they've won. They both think they finally got what they wanted. And they're going to the other one to gloat. And when they get to talk to the other one and begin to, to go and to gloat about their great victory, they immediately realize they've both been had. They've both been taken because the girl was also a con artist. And she was playing them against each other. And she took advantage of them both. And she's the one who walked away with all the money. And as they sit there at the end of the movie, they are mad. But they can't help but be impressed. They can't help but be impressed with the way that this young girl took advantage of them both. I think something like that is what's going on here. It's not that they're not mad. It's not that they like what happened. But, but at some level, they're impressed. This master is impressed with the shrewdness of his servant. And so what's the point? I've already said that Jesus is not encouraging us to become thieves. He's, he's not encouraging us to become unrighteous managers. But if that's not what Jesus is after, what is it that he wants us to emulate? Well, Jesus tells us himself in verse 9. Look what he says. How does Jesus apply the parable? He says, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when that unrighteous wealth fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Dwellings. That's Jesus' application. But, but how, do we, how do we understand that? What is Jesus telling us to do? He, clearly, he wants us to be making friends. He says, make friends for yourself. Make friends. And he tells us the means by which we're to do this. We are to make friends for ourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So we have unrighteous wealth at our disposal and we are to use it to make friends for ourselves. Friends who have the capacity to receive us into eternal dwellings. Now that's still a little problematic. Okay, Jesus, we're supposed to use unrighteous wealth. That that word by itself is is problematic. What does Jesus mean by unrighteous wealth? It sounds a lot like ill-gotten gain or something. You know, like like wealth we've gotten by force or by fraud or or just simply by stealing. And and it, it doesn't exactly make sense. So what does Jesus mean? That's the first term we have to understand here. What is this unrighteous wealth that Jesus is talking about? I think we can begin to understand what he means when we remember uh, that Paul's distinction or Paul's description of this present age in Galatians chapter 1. Do you remember Paul's description of this age in, in Galatians chapter 1? He says that Jesus has come to deliver us what? From this present evil age. This present age is an age of unrighteousness. And when Jesus here refers to unrighteous wealth, I believe he is referring simply to the wealth of this age. He makes a similar distinction in his Sermon on the Mount. He he speaks of the treasures of earth versus the treasures of 
heaven. And the treasures of earth, the treasures of this age, are the unrighteous wealth that he is talking about here. We see this, I think, when we scan down to verse 11. We'll look at this verse in more detail next Sunday, but look at it now just briefly. Notice what Jesus says. He says, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true Riches. The unrighteous wealth there is the wealth you've had in this age. The true riches are the, are the riches of the age to come. And so Paul, Jesus, God, Jesus is saying, listen, the unrighteous wealth is the wealth of this age. It's the wealth that's at your disposal now. It's the, it's the wealth of this present evil age. He says, and if you're not faithful in that, who will entrust you the true riches, the riches of heaven, the riches of the age to come. And so if we understand Jesus this way, if we understand that, the, that unrighteous wealth simply refers to the wealth of this age, then we can begin to make sense of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is exhorting us to use the wealth of this age, that which is at our disposal here and now, to secure our future, not just our future in this age, but our eternal future. We are looking for friends who can receive us into eternal homes, into eternal dwellings. That when this age is over and when the the wealth of this age becomes useless, he says, at that moment, you're going to need friends who can receive you into eternal homes. So basically, what Jesus is commending here is living the present with eternity in view. This is what Jesus is after. He says, you must live here and now. You must live in the present. And you must use the resources that are at your disposal here, not as if this life were all that there was, but you must live here and now with an eternal perspective. You must live here and now with eternity in view. Given the reality of eternity, it simply doesn't make sense. It it simply isn't wise. It isn't shrewd to use the language of the parable. It isn't wise to use the wealth and the resources that that are at our disposal now merely to secure pleasure in this life. Using the wealth of this age, using that which has been entrusted to you here and now to serve your own interests here and now isn't actually in your interest. It's the, you know, Ben talked about irony in, in Sunday school this morning, and it's the, it's the irony of selfishness. It's the irony of self-interest. Self-interest and selfishness actually isn't in your interest. You're doing it to secure your good, but you're actually undermining your good as a consequence. You see, all wealth is, is God's wealth. Like this manager, we are managers. We are stewards of, of what God has entrusted to us. And to simply use that to secure our own good here and now is actually to undermine our own good. If you were really interested in your own good, then you would use the wealth that has been entrusted to you here and now. Not to secure good here and now, but rather you would use it in such a way to secure your eternal happiness, to secure your eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not commending us to become dishonest. He's not commending us to become thieves. He's saying, but listen, if even a thief knows to look to the future, how much more should the children of light, who know that that future is eternal, live with that eternal future in view when they are deciding what to do in the present? That is what this parable is all about. Jesus is calling on his disciples, calling upon the children of light to live with an eternal 
perspective. So what does that mean? What is that, how, do we, how do we work that out sort of in the details of our own day-to-day life? Well, I can, I can think of at least three ways, and, and probably more, that, that we turn this on its head. Three ways that we fail to live with an eternal perspective that we must learn to reverse if we are going to heed Jesus' uh, uh, words in this parable. First, I would suggest to you that we fail to maintain an eternal perspective. That is, we, we fail to live with eternity in view, quite obviously, when we choose the fleeting pleasures of sin over the lasting joys of obedience. We said this morning that in our call to worship that, that one of the things that God has, has given us is His Word. This is one of His greatest blessings to His people. He has instructed us how to to live here and now. And and walking in His ways is the expression of faith. Paul uses that language in in Romans and elsewhere. He talks about the, the obedience that flows out of faith. You see, our obedience does not earn our salvation. We don't merit God's blessing. But obedience is the outworking of faith. Or as Paul says it in Galatians, faith expresses itself in love, which he says in Romans, is the fulfillment of the law. You see how this it always keeps coming back to it. That, that there is an obedience that flows out of, of faith. And that obedience not only enjoys the, the good of God's design now, but because it is an expression of faith, it lays hold of the inheritance of the age to come. And so Jesus is saying, listen, when you choose the pleasures of sin, when you choose the fleeting Temporal, momentary pleasures of sin over the lasting joys of obedience. You are failing to live with eternity in view. I'm sure you can think of any number of ways that we, we do this. Maybe one of the most obvious in our day and age is with regards to sexual pleasure. It is the besetting sin of our generation in many ways, and the church is not immune. When you read the statistics, they are heartbreaking about not only what's going on outside the church, but what's going on inside the church. We see again and again and again that we are prone to choose fleeting pleasures rather than lasting joys. But the irony of it is, The irony of all sin and and the irony of this particular sin is that in our pursuit of pleasure, we are cutting ourselves off from true good. We are cutting ourselves off from fellowship with the Father. Not just because he has some rules and he's kind of spiteful, but he says, listen, if you're going to treat my my image bearers as objects for your own gratification, you can't then come fellowship with me. It's what God says to the people of Israel in, in, in Isaiah 59. He says, listen, your sins are cutting you off from me. Treat one another with respect. Treat one another with, with justice. Treat one another with, with um, the love that you are called to. Then you may fellowship with me. But you cannot, on the one hand, treat your, your brother as an object for your own gratification and then turn around and pretend that you're going to fellowship with God. It's what John says. He says, if you, if you hate your brother and claim to love God, you are a liar. It doesn't work that way. The love of God will transform you. It will flow through you such that you delight in the good of your neighbor and and relate to them as persons, as people, rather than as objects. Now, of course, Paul, uh, when he, he speaks of these things and when Jesus speaks of these things, he's not saying that if you've ever committed sexual sin, then you're out. You'll think of what Paul says in, in Corinthians right after saying that those who, who give themselves to these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, and such were some of you, acknowledging that they, they came out of that. 
And, and he acknowledges in Romans 7 that, that Christians continue to struggle with sin. They continue to do things that they hate. They don't always do the good that they desire. But here's what the, the point is. He says, listen, we cannot, with an unrepentant heart, give ourselves to sin and say, but God will forgive because it's what he likes to do. We cannot simply choose to indulge the passions of our, of our flesh. We cannot simply choose to, to, to uh, again and again, the fleeting pleasures of sin and then, and then pretend that God will forgive because that's his job. Jesus says, no, live now with eternity in view, which means renouncing those things, which means fighting against those things. Yes, you will fail. Yes, you will stumble. But daily, you will uh, repent. Daily, uh, you will seek forgiveness. Daily, you will seek grace to renounce and to walk away and to put to death. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. If by the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. That is the promise. And so one of the ways that we have to think about this is that we must not choose the fleeting pleasures of sin. We must see the fleeting pleasures of sin for what they are. We must see, see them as false promises that lead only to death. But of course, it's not only in the realm of, of sexual sin. We could say the same thing about material pleasures. That's another besetting sin of our culture to which the church is not immune. You know, we, we are a prosperous people and we have material things and material things are good. But when those things become uh, the, the sum and substance of our life, when we make those things what we worship and serve, we are cutting ourselves off from true fellowship with God. But again, how foolish is it to, to choose that which turns to dust? over the eternal joys where moth and rust cannot break in. How foolish it is to choose those those temporal goods over the eternal goods at God's right hand. And so we must learn not to, to choose the fleeting pleasures of sin over the eternal joys of fellowship with our Father. There's a second way that we, we can do this as well. Not only is it with relationship to the fleeting pleasures of sin, but we also fail to maintain an eternal perspective when we value the praise of men over the praise of God. So first we said we can choose the fleeting pleasures of sin over the pleasures of God. Second, we can choose the praise of men over the praise of God. And again, just we do this in, in innumerable ways. You, you can think of them your, yourselves. Have you ever been willing to, to lie or to at least shade the truth in order to gain or secure for yourself some, some immediate benefit, some, some benefit at your work or some benefit in your, your circle of friends or, or some you know, benefit out on social media. You're, you're willing to, to shade the truth. You're willing to just twist it a bit to gain for yourself an advantage. I think of you know be the bullying you know again a hot topic in our in our day. Have you ever been willing to join in? Have you been willing to sort of pile on against someone else, either so that you won't be bullied yourself, or so that you might gain some status with those who are who are doing the bullying? You know, we when we do that, what are we doing? We are valuing the praise of men. We are valuing the words of men more than we are valuing the praise of God. Or to use the biblical language, we are fearing men rather than God. At that moment, we're no longer fearing the Lord. We're no longer walking in His fear. But rather, we are walking in the fear of men. We are allowing their opinions, their, uh, um, their thoughts to dictate to us how we will live. And again, you could multiply the examples. But when we do this, when we value the praise of men, which is so easy for us to do, 
in just a moment, we're willing to, to compromise the truth to secure our reputation. It's so easy for us to do, but Jesus says, when you do that, you are failing to live with eternity in view. You're not being shrewd. Really, are you going to value? Are you going to value the praise of men over the eternal favor of your heavenly Father? Again, it's the verse that that Ben talked about in Sunday school this morning. Don't fear the one who can merely kill your body. Fear the one. Walk in the fear of the one who has authority over your soul. And related to this, maybe just the other side of the coin, a third way that we fail to maintain an eternal perspective is when we choose to avoid the pains of discipleship, the pains of following after Jesus. When we choose to avoid those pains by simply siding with the world rather than following after Him. You know what they are. You know the the pains of of discipleship. It's what Peter did, is it not? As Peter stood around the fire on the night that Jesus was betrayed, trying to maybe find out what was going to happen to his master, a little girl comes up to him and says, you're one of them, aren't you? You were with Jesus. In order to avoid the, the potential pain, which really, let's be honest here, this was significant pain, probably greater pain than any of us have ever felt. He was at risk of losing his life. Jesus was in the process of being condemned to death to side with him, is to, to side with the traitor. So it's not just a little girl. We sometimes give Peter a hard time. But if he publicly acknowledges that he is with Jesus, he is putting his life at risk. And in order to avoid that pain, though he had boasted earlier that he would follow him to the grave, in order to avoid that pain, he denies even knowing him, a scene that would be repeated again and again. And we know it all too well, do we not? We know what it is to avoid the pain of following Jesus by, by either hiding our allegiance or, or denying that we know him. And when we do that, when we avoid the, the temporary, momentary afflictions of, of discipleship in this life, we We value them more than the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us. And Jesus says that is utter foolishness. The sons of light ought to be more shrewd. But obviously such shrewdness doesn't come naturally. It obviously doesn't come easily. When we we look at our own lives, we can see evidence after evidence after evidence that, that we have failed to live with shrewdness. And so where do we learn this? How do we learn to be wise? How do we learn to live with an eternal perspective? Remember what Paul says. Paul says all the treasures of wisdom are hidden in Christ. It's as we look to Christ, and it's as we abide in Him, that this wisdom that Jesus is committing will become ours. Think about it for just a moment. Jesus was the ultimate shrewd manager. Now, we have a hard time saying that because, you know, Jesus was not ever even slightly dishonest. And so we have a hard time seeing Jesus as a shrewd manager, but he was. Jesus was the one who lived life perfectly with an eternal perspective. Jesus is the one who lived in the present perfectly with The end in goal. Just think about what the author of Hebrews says. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Jesus was not immune to the pains of discipleship. He was not immune to the the struggles of doing his Father's will. He he took flesh like us. He was like us in every way except sin. He, He knew our weakness. He knew our infirmities. 
And yet he lived with eternity in view. He saw the end. And therefore he was willing to endure. He was willing to endure. He he did not choose the fleeting pleasures of sin when, when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. But rather he said, man does not live by bread alone. I don't need the pleasure of bread at this moment. I will do my Father's will. You can't tempt me. And certainly he did not go after the praise of of men as, as he repeatedly pronounced woes upon those who were most influential in his community. And certainly he did not avoid the pains of discipleship. As Paul tells us in Philippians 2, that he was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Why? Because of the joy set before him. Because he saw the end. Because he lived with eternity in view. And he said, not my will, but my Father's will be done. I will not deviate to the right or to the left to gain some pleasure here and now, but I will walk the path that has been set before me. That the good and the glory that God has in store for me and for my people, that it will be secure. And because he did that, because he was obedient even unto death, we now know that our future is unassailable. The ransom price has been paid. We've been redeemed not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of our Lord and Savior. And so therefore, our salvation is secure. As Peter says, it is ready to be revealed. There is nothing left to do. The work has been done. Our salvation is complete. And so therefore, whatever afflictions we might suffer in this life are slight and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is ours in Him. That is the good news of the Gospel. Our futures are secure, and we can live now with an eye on that future with such freedom, knowing that the worst they can do to us is kill us. Sounds like crazy talk to the world. But for those who have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord, for those who know the hope of glory that is ours in Christ, it is anything but crazy. It is shrewd. It is the wisdom of Christ. And we go before our Savior and may we ask Him to fill us with all the grace we need to grow in this wisdom that we might live today with eternity in view. Let us pray to that end. Pray with me. Father God, you are a good and gracious God. And you call us to be shrewd. You call us to recognize, Father, that that the things that Satan tempts us with, that they are fleeting, that they are momentary, that they are temporal, that they are bound to return to dust. But that what you offer us, Father, is solid, eternal joy. The joys at your right hand the pleasures of your kingdom to come. Father God, give us the grace to become wise. Give us the grace to be shrewd, that we might live today to the praise of your glory and for all eternity might know the joys of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.